There are these pressing societal political questions facing our culture. Questions about war, the economy, health care, abortion, homosexual rights, immigration, social security. And another round of elections and propositions will be decided in a couple weeks. So now is the right time to ask, how exactly does our Christian, biblical, reformed worldview distinctively shape our view of politics and culture? What is the relationship between our faith and the political systems in which we live? And what is our political obligation as reformed Christians? That is the subject of our new two-part series, which we'll call Toward a Reformed Political Ethic. And we'll start it now on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Thank you for joining us right now on Sinners and Saints. I am Adam Kalustian with John Sautel and Moses Jambazian. We're pastors in local United Reformed churches here in Ontario and Walnut and Pasadena, California. Welcome. We're talking about toward a reformed political ethic. And we dare to tread these waters probably for a few reasons. And we want to give some of those reasons to you here right at the outset. Well, we've in the past critiqued other views, especially the Christian right, and you know we've heard other things that are going around the churches, other things that Christians say are biblical principles that have to apply to politics and government, and so we would like to critique those and give you, actually, a biblical worldview and a biblical view of politics. That's right. Part of this is we look around and see the different options that are out there, and we have been dissatisfied with them. But it's it's more to born out of a, a personal frustration, and I'm sure it's one that you can identify with, uh, a perplexity, really, that when we look around and see our governments, the countries, states, counties, and cities, and how they're running things, not to speak of foreign governments even, we we just can't believe some of the things that are going on, and we want to respond as Christians to them. And we need some guidelines from the Scripture about, you know, how to deal with these issues. Yeah, and people are always pressing us, Pastor, Pastor, but we need to have a Christian answer to this. And they always begin that with a a philosophy, really, instead of a biblical view. And that is summarized in the little slogan, if Jesus isn't Lord over all, then he's not Lord at all. And that means then Jesus must be Lord over our civil government. If he's Lord over our civil government, then there must be a whole uh, set of biblical laws and ideas that we can just take right out of the scripture, right out of the Bible, and apply to our contemporary situation. But I don't don't want us to, to bash that idea entirely, because sometimes at the root of that idea is a good thing. I mean, people are asking in one sense, what does it mean to be reformed when it comes to politics, or how does the Bible want me to think about the lordship of Christ in the political realm? But that's a different thing than than what's often presupposed today. Everybody begins with the presupposition that the reformed view is that we just take right out of the Old Testament, cut and paste, and put that into our constitutions and contemporary governments, and there you have the reformed view. All right, we're going to develop that idea further as we go along in these two shows, but this first show is going to specifically address a wrong answer to the question, how does Jesus want the government to be? And it is a misapplication of the Bible, one that 
follows the wrong principle that John just addressed, and that is the teaching of theonomy or the theonomic political ethic. Maybe you've heard of it. I know we've mentioned it briefly before in our series on the law and other times, but theonomic politics pops up in a lot of Presbyterian circles, and for that reason, sometimes it pops up in our Reformed churches too, people coming in and out. And the theonomic political ethic basically teaches that the civil laws of Old Testament Israel recorded in the Bible are more or less in their entirety the abiding political standards for all the nations of the world in any time and in any culture. And therefore, of course, it's the duty of any magistrate who's a Christian, sensitive at all to the Bible, to enforce those uh, civil laws in their culture and any Christian who has any sphere of uh, political influence in society to work toward the passing and the promotion and the preservation of those laws. That's what theonomy is. And a lot of people who profess to be Reformed Christians will use the Bible and say, this is God's answer. And there's, it's understandable to an extent why this position is so popular. And, and on my take on it, I think one of the main reasons why this position is so appealing is because it helps me make sense out of my Bible. It gives me the false sense of confidence and assurance that I can just go to the Scriptures, cut and paste directly from Leviticus 19, and bring it over into uh, my contemporary historical context, whatever government I'm a part of, and then I, I know what God's will is in this area. And it's a very simplistic idea, and it gives me the confidence that I have access to the entire Bible, I can make sense out of the Bible, and I can make a very concrete, specific applications of the Bible to my life. Well, and people say, look, in something so significant as the political realm, I mean, think of the issues that we raise in the open, economy, healthcare, abortion, homosexual rights, immigration, social security, all these things which are facing our culture and so significant, obviously God must have spoken very clearly to them. And one of the appeals of theonomy is that it does give an easy answer. It's not a, a relativistic idea where people sit around in a political think tank and everybody, even Christian reform people, sit around and give their opinions and try and debate different philosophies, which we would view as all worldly, right, to, to try and come up with good political answers and approaches. No, the, the appeal of theonomy is the Bible says it, and it's God's way or the highway, and it's very clear what God says, and therefore you should just obviously embrace it. Let me read you a couple of quotes that reflect this idea, this approach, this outward appeal of theonomy. One says that we are trying to move the Christian community into a better position to present a world and life view which constitutes a serious, and here's the important phrase, specific alternative to the secular humanism which has inundated us like a flood in our generation. So what's important about theonomy to this writer, is that it offers something specific, and it is not open to question. It is very clear when you read the Bible what these political laws are, and you should then apply them in the culture. Here's another one. It says, any conception of the role of civil government that claims to be distinctively Christian must be explicitly justified by the teachings of God's revealed world, word. Anything else reflects what the unbelieving world in rebellion against God may imagine on its own. There are no moral norms given in natural revelation which are missing from special revelation. So you see the argument here. If it isn't revealed in the Bible, which we will presume because supposedly the Bible teaches that it teaches everything we need to know about the moral norms of life, and obviously morality comes into play in politics, then therefore we necessarily must look to the Scripture to give us the indication of how the government should run, what laws should be passed, the limits of government. And this is the approach of theonomy, the appeal of it in many ways to a lot of people. 
But I want you to think about that for a minute. Do we really believe in all areas of life that every moral norm is contained in the Bible? Think about a doctor who's performing surgery. Where does he get the knowledge to make a specific proper decision about how to treat a patient? Well, he finds it from natural revelation, doesn't he? Now, would it be wrong for him in the face of obvious truth to operate in a way that is not in accord with the natural revelation? Is it a moral sin? Of course it is, because he's called to preserve the life of the person that he is treating. And he does not get that specific knowledge from the scripture. He gets it from God's word in the natural revelation. And so it is not arbitrary to find truth outside of special revelation and the scripture. Well, if I'm a a theonomist, I think I can anticipate that objection and give you an answer to it. They're going to say, well, yeah, of course not. The doctor doesn't, if he's ready to make a surgical incision, open up Leviticus chapter 22 to figure out where to make the incision if he's operating on somebody's appendix. But then they'll say that's fine because the Bible doesn't purport to give you specific instructions on how to perform an appendectomy. But it does tell you how civil governments ought to operate. Let's see, again, they're presenting a fallacy here because, quite frankly, the Jehovah's Witnesses in some ways are correct when they say that transfusions are not allowed scripturally because the life of the animal or the person is in the blood and therefore you shouldn't receive the blood and that would be improper. And so the Jewish economy, their dietary system did not allow blood. So then no doctor should use blood following this uh, process. Of course, the theonomic response to that is that the dietary laws and the specific separation laws of the Old Testament are explicitly repealed or fulfilled. They'll want to use different words about those laws in the New Testament, and therefore you don't see that happening with the civil laws, and therefore you can't overthrow them, which kind of leads us into the basic arguments in favor of the theonomic ethic, which we want to address. Okay, so let me give you a a beginning point of their argument. Matthew 5, verse 17, or at least uh, Dr. Greg Bonson's, uh, which is probably the most thought-out, biblical, exegetical argument uh, for this particular point of view. And uh, maybe one of you guys can uh, tear this apart and critique it, but it begins with Matthew five seventeen, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So see, there it is. Uh, it's not only uh, in the Bible, but even Jesus said it was so, that the law will not pass away. He has come to fulfill it. Okay, well, let's go back. You you first read the law and the prophets, but when you were summarizing, you said the law. And that's, again, one of the big problems with theonomy is that they use this passage, which speaks of the law and the prophets, but then they restrict it to just the law portion. Jesus is saying neither the law nor the prophets will pass away until the end comes. What is the end he is speaking of? Because it can't be the prophets in this case being applied to civil government because the prophets are speaking of the coming of the Messiah, the end of sacrifice, and all these other things. So if they want to use that passage, they better use all of that passage, and they need to find out how it should all apply. But let's back up a step here. I mean, the principle that the theonomic camp is using out supposedly out of Matthew 5.17 and other places, is that we should presume that everything in the Old Testament 
continues, all of the laws of the Old Testament continue to be morally binding in the New Testament age unless they are rescinded or modified by further revelation. Now, we can address Matthew 5.17 and other passages specifically, but I want you to get this principle clear in your head. This is the main argument of the theonomic camp. It says, we should presume that the Old Testament standing laws continue to be morally binding in the New Testament unless they are rescinded or modified by further revelation. And the question that we want to ask is, is that the New Testament's default hermeneutic of the Old Testament law given to Israel? My answer, obviously, would be no, it's not. Because the New Testament hermeneutic is very clearly announcing that a new covenant has come, and this new covenant brings a new law and a new priesthood. And therefore, the old is done away with. It has to be seen as a totality. You have the Mosaic economy, which has with it the Aaronic priesthood, the sacrifices, and the kingdom laws. And all of these are part and parcel of a single system which is set aside. Not to say that God's moral principles have changed, but the code as a covenant is set aside. One of the clearest passages that deals with the Old Testament law and where it stands now, or at least where the New Testament or New Covenant believer stands in relationship to it is Galatians chapter 3, uh, particularly beginning with verse 19. It's a complex passage where the Apostle Paul is dealing with the whole issue of how do we receive or take part in the inheritance that was promised to Abraham? Is it by law or is it by gospel? And Paul's answer is very clear in this passage that we receive it by gospel. But then he brings in the question then of the law. He says in verse 19, why then the law? Now, there are three very important things that he says here about the law. First of all, he says it was added. Paul gives us an image for how to conceive of how the law even fits into the whole pattern of Old Testament revelation. When he uses that word added there, it's almost like a two-layer cake kind of a concept, where you have the bottom layer would be gospel and promise, the kinds of things that God was talking about with Abraham. And then 430 years later, God introduces law. That's the second layer of the cake. So, the point of it is, it's not as if God fuses together law and gospel, and through commingling both my faith and the promises and the gospel, plus my obedience to God's commandments, that somehow I can now obtain or acquire this inheritance. Paul's point is very clear. No, the law was added on top to of this covenant situation. It's a distinct entity altogether. And then he takes on the next step, then it was added because of transgressions. And what Paul now is saying, the whole function of the law in relationship to this uh, promise made to Abraham is that the law was added to cause transgressions. That way, all the descendants of Abraham would know that they themselves were absolutely incapable of performing the righteousness demanded by the law. Therefore, it's not an option for them in order to acquire this promised inheritance. And the third clause in that passage, the law was added because of the transgressions or in order to bring about the transgressions. The third clause says, until the seed should come to whom the promise has been made. Notice the temporal reference that Paul gives there. The law was added until the seed should come to whom the promises to Abraham had been made. You understand that? That means the law, the old covenant law system, including all aspects of it, okay, 
the old covenant law system was in force until Christ came and brought in the new covenant. Paul talks about this in Romans 10. He makes a passing reference to Christ as the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. And that is the biblical way. That is the way that Paul reflects on the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 when Jesus says that that he came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He came to bring them to completion. He was the one who fulfilled the ceremonial aspects of the law. He is the one who revealed by his whole life and by his whole person all of the beauties of the moral aspects and the the holiness and the purity of the moral aspects of the law. Jesus is the one who comes to put an end to that covenant by completing it. It was designed to bring him out in the first place, and he honors that law by bringing it to its ultimate fulfillment. He was the purpose of it all along. And this is the problem with theonomy, is it does not evaluate the law system in the way the Apostle Paul does. Paul does not look at the law as this corpus of laws which are so helpful and relevant to answering the question of how a civil government ought to be operating or functioning. He looks at the law in terms of the purpose that God gave it for, which was that it would be a grand public demonstration of the kinds of righteousness that God required in order to take part in the kingdom of God. And if you didn't make it, he was going to boot you out. And that's one of the things that we have to consider also is how the apostle Peter viewed the law. When the discussion occurred as to whether we need to apply the law's requirements to the Gentiles coming into the church, what's his response? Neither we nor our fathers could fulfill it. The impossibility of the law being fulfilled by sinful man is very clear in the minds of the apostles. And therefore they say, no, we will not have it applied to the Gentiles. Rather, it is the gospel of grace which will lead them to the gratitude and the works of gratitude required. You see, even they knew it was not something being given that could be done on earth. They saw it as that which was meant to show the hopeless condition of fallen man in the first Adam. Now, you see, what we're addressing, remember, is the fundamental defense of the theonomic political ethic, which is that we must presume that the Old Testament laws continue to be morally binding in the New Testament unless they are rescinded or modified by further revelation. And we are saying that the New Testament gives the exact opposite hermeneutic, in a sense. It says... We do not presume that the Old Covenant laws are standing and continue to be morally binding because they were given for a a particular time in redemptive history and with their completion in the coming of Christ, the Old Covenant laws are done away. Now, the objection is, you people who say that are basically now dispensationalists because you are saying now that, for example, thou shalt not murder is all of a sudden done away with and... God must not want us to follow that law at all in our personal life, in our family life, in our church life, because you're saying that the default hermeneutic is that it's all passed away. No, here's the thing, and this is what they've entirely missed, maybe because they are so worried about the boogeyman of dispensationalism. Go back historically to read the Reformers. This is the Reformed hermeneutic, is that the New Testament has the right to correct our understanding of the Old Testament. You do not begin with this flawed concept of abiding validity in exhaustive detail and disregard the New Testament. We have to approach the way we understand the Old Testament through Paul, 
through Peter, through Jesus, through the apostles, through New Testament revelation, because that provides the corrective to understand the proper application of Old Testament narratives, Old Testament laws, and Old Testament prophecies. Yeah, let me respond to this this specifically to that objection. You know, well, you're if you're going to throw out the Old Testament civil laws by that default hermeneutic that you supposedly read in Paul and Peter and the apostles in Christ, then you're going to throw out all the moral laws too. Well, listen. When God reflects his eternal moral character, which he does do in various covenants, and of course he does that a lot in the Old Covenant Revelation, for example, we see in the Ten Commandments, and you've heard us talk about them, on, uh, we did a series of shows on Ten Commandments, when God reflects in the Old Testament Revelation, within the Old Covenant system, his eternal moral character, of course it's true that it's abiding for us today. And of course it's true that God didn't need to repeat himself in the New Testament for those things to be true, abiding revelations and reflections and obligations that, uh, of his character over his creatures yet today. But it doesn't escape the fact that the reason we can say that is because the way the New Testament authors quote those laws and show us that they are continuing to be abiding. Now, a dispensationalist may say that unless God repeats it, it doesn't count at all, and we're not saying that. We're saying the New Testament guides us in how to read and understand the abiding validity of various moral laws in the Old Covenant system. So we can say very emphatically that we do not obey Old Covenant law as such. We are not Old Covenant Jews in Israel. However, insofar as the New Testament teaches us that those laws reflect the eternal moral, moral character of God, then we are obligated to obey them. The, what you're getting at here from a different angle is the whole concept of the fact that we have to understand the whole Old Testament, but particularly even the laws of God, the moral revelation of God redemptive historically. You see, this is a problem that we have in how we approach Scripture. We think, oh, God sees a situation and he gives a set of laws in case of this, do that, and the other thing. But that's not how... That's not the rationale for the law-giving, particularly in the Old Testament. The rationale for the law-giving is how Paul expounds it in Galatians and Romans and other passages of Scripture, is that God was trying to show with this project, this covenantal arrangement with Israel, that he was going to redeem them in a particular kind of way. He was republishing a covenant of work situation under which they would be uh, subjected to a terrible yoke of bondage, which Scripture calls imprisonment, incarceration, bondage, uh, all different kinds of you know, very negative kinds of metaphors to describe uh, that it was a terrible situation, and it was to reflect man's inability to redeem himself. Now, Christ born under the law then is the key or the answer to how God is going to redeem his people. But it's a it's to be approached from what is God trying to do in this to redeem his people, not just God giving case laws or moral laws on how to do government or how to uh, perform surgery or a textbook on mathematics. Okay, for those who might not be familiar with what some of uh, Pastor John just said, he's basically referring to how to understand the whole of Scripture, and he says that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is given as a republication of laws that were first given to Adam, or at least the concept of a law that has death penalty associated with it. And Jesus comes under that law 
in order to fulfill that which Adam did not do. So the whole purpose of the Israelite economy, the Mosaic law, is not for national governments, but for the redemption that God wishes to accomplish. It is for deliverance of sinners. That's right. Take the same exact thing from another angle. Have you ever thought about why God would come to sinful people and give them a law and tell them to obey it when he knew full well that they were sinful people and would not be able to meet the demands of this law and would actually sin against it and break it. Have you ever thought about that? You know, when God tells the Israelites, if you obey me, you will be blessed, but if you disobey me, you will be cursed. I'm going to bring you into this land, but you know, the only way to you to be maintained in this land is if you obey me. Why would he do that? And it's exactly what Moses just said and what John was saying earlier. He did it as a, a, a grand historical picture, a display to everybody who sees it, to the Israelites at the time and to us today to see, oh, if my standing before God would be based on my own works, then I am going to suffer the same fate that Israel ended up suffering, which is being cut off, just like my first father Adam did. And that would drive us then to the true righteousness, the true holiness, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep in mind also in the Old Testament, with Moses giving the law, already God declares through his prophet Moses, by the way, you will break the law, and when you are in exile because of the curses of the law, remember that I threatened to do this to you. And then the prophets show up and they all say the same thing. You will be exiled because you will not keep the law, and you will not be able to worship God in the temple. But here's the promise. God will restore you with a new covenant that is different than this one. So the Old Testament, the law and the prophets that Jesus spoke of, are fulfilled when he comes to bring a new covenant, and the old is done away with, and that's the one that theonomy misses. I'm telling you, something that you have to do if you want to help overcome this problem of trying to uh, read the Bible as a political textbook is you have to stop approaching the Bible as a how-to manual. And it's very difficult because everybody today thinks that's exactly how you read the Bible. That God just gives us a bunch of abstract principles out there in these scriptures. It's timeless wisdom for people of all ages. And there's some truth to it. There's kernels of truth in all of this. But our problem today is we have an obsession with ourselves and how to make life more efficient, more manageable, easier, more successful. That time management principles approach to scripture. And that's just not what it was given for. If you separate the purpose of scripture, which is about redemption and Christ, you're going to continue to misunderstand this and a whole array of other topics. And see, this is where the Theonomists, and I read a quote that, that referenced this passage earlier, all the time, then they'll shout back at you, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, being thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so therefore, because the Bible is sufficient, that must mean that the Bible speaks to every moral situation, especially something so significant as our ethic in the political realm. And our answer to that is, no, you are not allowed to pervert the Scripture and fit it in wherever you perceive there to be a need for God to speak in a particular way that you desire, because that is oversimplistic. The sufficiency of Scripture does not mean that every single question that comes up in your life and in your culture that you think of is, is of importance, God must speak to it actually and specifically. 
we do believe that there are principles that will guide our political discussions, like the, the point of the series is toward a political reformed ethic, and we're going to get more into that next time. But you can't just say the scripture is sufficient, and therefore, I will apply any part of it how I see. You have to follow the New Testament hermeneutic. That's the point. Now, that this is, you know, this is the other main argument against theonomy is when you read the civil laws— of the Old Testament quoted in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, do the apostles apply them civilly? This is a fascinating question. I mean, the the theonomists always take dispensationalists to task for their arbitrarily cutting up the Old Testament scripture, right? Not following the New Testament lead on how to read the laws. But they simply pass over how the New Testament treats these civil laws and the fact that they do not the, the New Testament authors do not use them, do not apply them politically, governmentally, civilly. I've got one for you. Matt, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, elders and how to respect them, and particularly about salaries. He says, 1 Timothy five seventeen, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. Now, the basis for that, verse 18, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Deuteronomy 25. He's quoting from the Old Testament laws here, and well, he Paul, is Paul just must not be giving. Yeah, you, apparently, Paul must not be sensitive to the abiding moral uh, obligation of the civil laws into the new covenant today, right? I mean, he's reading them according a general equity principle and hermeneutic, and probably one we would never have come up with on our own, but. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sees a connection somehow between cows uh, having a right to uh, feed on the grain while they're treading it out and um, ministers fulfilling their calling and getting a wage out of that. Yeah, there's another great example in 1 Corinthians 5 of Paul talking about a church discipline case. This is amazing. A church discipline case, and he quotes in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, an Old Testament civil law. Put away from yourselves the evil person. What is that talking about? That's talking about expelling somebody from the nation of Israel, taking them. They they no longer have a right when they sin in particular ways in the Old Covenant. You can read about them to belong to the citizenry of Israel. And here Paul takes that civil law. And does he apply it civilly? No. He applies it in the church, referencing church discipline, which if we had time to examine it further would give us more uh, indication of how the Old Covenant laws should be understood and applied. They are holy and redemptive and speak to us about what goes on the chur- in the church today uh, far more than they do about the civil laws in the political realm today. But the point overall of this is the, the New Testament authors do not apply the Old Testament laws civilly. And so obviously they are not violating a biblical principle they're inspired by the holy spirit and they don't and it's because they don't start with the presupposition that the theonomists do okay christian right bad christian left bad so-called christian theonomy bad but that burning question is still there what is a reformed political ethic how do we answer the questions of the day How should I vote? How should I participate in politics? That's our question for next time, Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.